You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of our Payments Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Arundel, and today I'm joined by Rahul Shingal, who is the co-founder and CEO of Tazapay. Rahul, great to have you on. Same here, Richard. Very excited to have this chat with you. Well, I think you have the honor of being one of our first episodes out in uh, out in Singapore in, the, in our APAC region. So we've got to make it a good one. And as I was saying just before we came on live, you, you, you've brought the swag. Um, so we've you've got the the hoodie, you've got the the Tazapay logo up in the background. Um, so why don't we start maybe with a, with a quick introduction to to you and and Tazapay itself? I've been in payments almost all my career. Was at uh, PayPal for almost a decade, then at Stripe. Uh, was leading the APAC region for Stripe, and then. Started Tazapay almost about one and a half years ago. We are uh, venture funded, funded by the likes of Sequoia and RTP Global. And we focus on cross-border B2P payments, but with a very specific focus on two or three applications. What I had seen uh, at specifically at PayPal was people are willing to pay a premium for the notion of protection in these in these transactions. And B2C, it's a pretty well-established concept that if you make a payment to somebody and uh, something goes wrong, there is a proper resolution framework resolution and protection framework around it. There's something like that doesn't exist in B2B. So we set out to create something like that where we create trust in these cross-border transactions. But since then, we've evolved quite a bit. And I'm, sort of, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it uh, during our conversation. But that's my background, out-and-out out payment geek, and really excited to be partnering <laughs> with uh, Tazapay. Uh, sorry, with the uh, Currency Cloud. <laughs> Listen, we, we love partnering with Payment Geeks. And actually, that, that kind of brings me on to my, my next question. I think it'd be interesting. You, you were starting to touch on, on it there. And whenever I speak to founders, it's really interesting to ask, not just about what they do. And clearly, you're motivated by that kind of intellectual challenge of, of cross-border payments and uh, self-confessed payments geek, understanding kind of the deeper purpose behind behind the business. And I, w- I wanted to kind of dig into the the challenges that you see, and you know, you've been in this industry for a long time. You you were there at you know, some of these market leaders, Stripe and PayPal. But why is there such an issue now? Or why is there such an opportunity, should I say, especially kind of in, out in Singapore, for addressing this B two B challenge? Because I think we talked and we talked previously around you know that the digitalization of the consumer is well underway in the payments world. And from you know, from you and I, we have a certain expectation, and there's plenty of applications out there uh, that mm-hmm. support. You know, our, our payments, but from a business point of view, it's it's still lagging behind. So maybe kind of just tap into kind of that purpose of what you're trying to do or what you're trying to bring to the industry. A singular purpose that we had when we started was I had seen multiple merchants lose deals because they the buyer could not trust them or a buyer would lose, it, lose a deal because the seller could not trust them. And there was this inherent lack of trust between buyers and sellers. And unlike B2C where... In B2C world, a lot of this is taken care of by the marketplaces who provide the overall uh, trust framework. <clears throat> if you're buying on Amazon, you don't necessarily worry about the underlying seller and whether product quality would be good, whether it'll get delivered and stuff like that. The same thing had not happened in B2B. A lot of trade tends to be bilateral between a buyer and seller. And uh, we saw this inherent need that transactions need to be secure. There needs to be a proper framework for recording the transaction for codifying the underlying terms of the trade, for protecting the payment, if you may, and uh, giving security and and peace of mind to both. So that's what we started off. And I see that our vision was that with this, we will be able to enable thousands and millions of SMBs 
who would be able to trade fearlessly with their customer base uh, across the world. That was the underlying sort of uh, mission for us. Having said that, one thing which surprised us during the journey was that the pace at which I had expected these SMBs to digitize has been much slower than uh, we expected. And so that was one sort of, if I may say, a, a not so positive surprise. The more positive surprise was this emergence of B2B marketplaces, almost out of nowhere mm. in the last two and a half years. You know, unlike in Alibaba, which is this huge monolith and uh, it's all encompassing. In this part of the world, especially Southeast Asia, India, we are seeing vertical specific heroes, which are, they are really good at what they do, agri or electronics or engineering or freelancing. And that's where we saw real pull towards product market fit, where these marketplaces required a, a full stack solution to manage their payments, manage their compliance for cross-border payments. And so in a way, we originally started out with a vision of serving the SMBs directly, but I think we pivoted a little bit to serve these SMBs through these platforms who can provide a more full stack solution. I think you, you touched on an interesting point there of the trust and compliance side of things. Yeah. And we have seen, you're right, we've seen this, this emergence of a number of kind of B2B marketplaces, which I think represents an, an incredible opportunity, but if you get it right. And I think when you, when, if you have a look and if, if anybody's listening and, and looks at your website, you talk about kind of trust quite a lot. It's kind of all over the website, trust, and you talk about ESCO services. So maybe we can dive into kind of, kind of that. What, what is the mistrust when it comes to kind of B2B, specifically B2B cross-border payments? Where does that come from? What, what's the kind of history behind that? There are three levels of mistrust, which we classify them in uh, three categories. The first is, can is the other party legitimate? Is their legitimacy, are they an established entity? Have they done trade before? Or are they here there to swindle me? So, and at least pre-pandemic world, people could travel and get a sense of comfort, meet them, go to their factories and get a sense of comfort. And that's essentially been out of the window for the last two years, at least. That's the first level of trust. The second level of mistrust is... Uh, Will they pay me? Will I, if I pay the seller, will the seller disappear and not ship? And the seller is, if I have to ship in advance, will I get paid? So basic mistrust there that can I, my, can my payment be protected? And both parties usually have the right intent, but they just can't get along and do the transaction because the buyer wants the shipment first, the seller wants the payment first usually. So that's the second level of mistrust. And the third level of mistrust is on the quality of the product. And, you know, in the old eBay days, we used to classify it as seller due diligence, seller verification, item not received, and significantly not as described technical terms. So I think those are the three things we try to solve. Some we do very well. The initial verification of the buyer and seller through a pretty exhaustive uh, KYB process. The payment protection also quite well with this whole framework of collecting locally, holding, and then verifying the actual that the conditions of the deal have been met before we, we release the money. The quality part is a little still a little tricky. And that's why we've started working more with marketplaces who have a much better handle of the end-to-end -end supply chain and can get a handle better handle on quality. Interesting. And it's also interesting you don't mention, mention cost at all in terms of cost of that payment. Listen, cost is always going to be important, mm -hmm. but I'm guessing, especially in a B2B world, it is secondary to trust because the, the, the associated cost of having a faulty product or, or not receiving the kind of the funds, that's got to far outweigh the cost of, you know, one or two dollars here or there for the actual payment itself. That is true. It is usually cost is not such a big consideration. Again, uh, it came as a surprise. I came from a B2C world where an average cost of cross-border transaction can be between five to seven percent, including FX, especially if you're paying with a credit card. And that's completely outrageous. And, uh, you know, a lot of B2B merchants still tend to use it. You know, what 
companies like currency cloud have done beautifully is create this infrastructure where you can collect money locally whether in us europe canada and so reduce the cost for the buyer and then using your own liquidity network be able to settle anywhere in the world so infrastructure like that helps us quite a bit in reducing cost and not only reducing cost but also creating trust and a notion of trust because an american buyer would be much more comfortable doing a local ach rather than having to do a wire transfer where they don't have a sense of recourse i think that type of infrastructure has really helped and going forward i think what's happening in in the banking world with open banking is what really excites us this ability to really create a non credit card payment network is really what our vision has evolved to creating a non credit card payment network where you know we can tap on local ach rails local banking rails which offer a really good user experience and be able to offer merchants in our part of the world the ability to collect money from their buyers globally not only in a trusted way but also in a very very cheap way as opposed to b2c options Thank you for that kind of shameless plug for Currency Cloud. There, uh, <laughs> it wasn't the purpose of the of the, of the call. But um, I think what's interesting, and, and especially if you go into the marketplace world, suddenly you have a kind of a, a bilateral offering. So you're you're focusing not just on the seller or not just on the buyer. But you have to have a product for both. And because and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so who do you see as your customer on that side? Uh, you, or who does the marketplace see? So you're servicing ultimately the SMB. Either the buyer or the seller, but through the marketplace. But where do you focus your kind of product efforts? Are you are you looking more on the collection side of things, the funding, or is it more on the payout? Or because you've decided to go into a marketplace, you actually have to look at both. We have to look at both, but our primary customer tends to be the seller, okay. and our go-to-market focus is Southeast Asian sellers and Indian sellers connecting to buyers globally. When it was a pure escrow service between a buyer and seller, the power was really with the buyer, so you needed to convince the buyer. and we found it difficult being uh, you know mostly located in asia to have enough go to market muscle to go and convince the buyer and create comprehension with the buyer so naturally our focus has tended to be very southeast asia india centric and we focus on seller the full kyb onboarding uh, comprehension but we are increasingly seeing now southeast asian buyers are uh, using us to buy from global sellers as well so that's something which is which which is quite exciting especially if you consider kind of the addressable market for the for the business if that's kind of kind of double because you're getting the other side of the transaction and does that does that change your product in any way or is that just changing kind of your positioning and and marketing approach it changes a product quite a bit getting money out of north america europe is relatively easy compared to asian markets with all the currency controls and it's very very challenging especially markets like india china hong kong i think that's where we are trying to build a moat as well we kind of cracked it for indonesia for philippines for vietnam where we can offer local collection rails through the methods preferred by the customers there which is typically either a transfer to a bank account or a internet banking pool but our product changes quite significantly because the compliance overhead of collecting from these markets is significantly higher as of course uh, <laughs> no one knows better than you <laughs> people often ask kind of what industry we're in and and one of the default answers is ultimately we're all in a compliance industry but i think i think that's it's really important it's not it's not a i don't say that on a whim i i say it because of you're know, going back to what we talked about and what's all over plus all over your website is is all around trust and i think you know whether it is the buyer or the seller on the marketplace that you class as your customer ultimately these are these are and whether it's b2b or b2c you know moving money it's somebody's funds and it has to be safe and you know, he's got to keep it out of the back out of the, you know the, the hands of the bad guys ultimately but you know in a safe and compliant manner and i think you know when i first started in this in this industry 
compliance was sometimes seen as kind of the the no team you know a bit of a blocker but ultimately we've we've kind of flipped that and, and we see it as a huge kind of competitive advantage if you get it right um mm. because and especially you know, in the whole new world of kind of embedded finance where more and more of these businesses and, and, and marketplaces who aren't, aren't necessarily regulated to control the flow of funds are looking to partner with people who who do know what they're talking about and are going to do their proper due diligence so yeah we're, we're ultimately all in the business of compliance but it's such an important part and that, that's a completely separate podcast that we can go down um, and talk about that i couldn't agree with you more richard i've been in payments for 20 years but uh, and i knew it would be compliance heavy that i did not realize it'll be so compliance heavy it is, I think, 50, 60% of my time goes in just building the compliance rails and being being ready for all the regulatory requirements. And I think compliance has to be more than the regulatory requirements. It's what you have to do to keep your business safe. 100%. And actually, we, we will go down that, that hole slightly because you know, I've said this, I, I spent a few years in the US and, and navigating kind of the compliance and regulatory framework across all the states was, was one thing. But in the kind of Asia-Pacific region, I'm guessing that's a completely new challenge because it's not states you're dealing with. It's it's a whole host of 32-odd countries. How's that journey been? Because if you think, especially in the marketplace world, and these marketplaces aren't just servicing one or two countries, I'm guessing they're you know, relatively global by nature. So how's that kind of challenge been? Is, is it, you, you, were, you were there with, with PayPal, you were there with Stripe, but have your eyes been open since it's now your business yeah. uh, about the challenges? And they're fun challenges, but they're, they're challenges nevertheless. Great question. I mean, eyes have been, you know, I've been opened more than I cared for, really. It's, <laughs> I all, often say this, you know, when Western companies expand to Asia, especially American companies, Europe is the natural pit spot, pit stop, because one license, you get passported to 36 countries. Now, of course, 35 after Brexit. But uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, to our, thanks to our government for, for putting that and, in the place. <clears throat> and then they come to Asia and then they'll probably try to do Australia little bit in Japan and that's where the story pretty much ends and you know you can see this thing with most uh, European American companies and the reason is none of the individual markets have had scale to go and go full stack get a license build a team do data residency in in many cases and I think this is a perfect dilemma and that's why you have seen so many Asian heroes in Asia in Southeast Asia every country has a local hero there isn't really a regional hero here and I think foreseeable future, this is going to be the case. So the approach we take is for some markets, we go direct where the licensing regime allows us. But it's very important to then partner with the local providers and in some way leverage their license. Uh, the challenge is everybody's got a different compliance framework. So a massive amount of product bill goes into adapting to their compliance framework. What data goes into the, the sender name, The you know what information has to go into the MT103, what has to do with local payment. So it's that's becoming massively complicated and uh, regulators are not only making it more and more difficult. So that's on the downside. On the positive side, most regulators in this part of the world recognize the importance of cross-border trade, especially export. So with the exception of few markets, they've tended to make the regulation quite cross-border friendly uh, that uh, you have don't have data residency rules, for instance, in uh, in Indonesia and India for cross-border. And so I think it's a fine balance. And to some extent, it's an art also because you've got to have your narrative and work with the regulator and explain that what you're trying to do is in the best interest of the businesses there. And hence, some amount of forbearance is required. It's, it's, a, it's a massive part of any fintech's journey in this part of the world. I mean, I'll say that. Yeah, you, you could do it. That's what fintechs are, are put on this earth to do is to navigate some of these complexities. And that, that for me, I, I view it as this, there's such a big opportunity 
for for partnerships. You know, there's a reason why a marketplace doesn't go out and do it themselves because it's complex. They don't have a team with you know, 50, 60 years worth of payments experience like like Tazapay do. So why would you go and do that yourself? Because the cost of getting it wrong, you know, far outweighs the cost of you know what you pay maybe in a partnership, what you give up you know, a couple of cents of a dollar. So I, I, I view it very much as an opportunity, and I think you know, that the strength of partnerships in actually across the world, but but in some of these regions where you have kind of complex kind of regulatory frameworks is is, is incredible. It's probably the only industry where competitors collaborate as much, right? Mm. And, and yeah. I love your take on this. You've got a global payment rail disbursement network and you partner with a lot of your competitors to do the last mile in some markets and your competitors use you for markets where you are strong, but yet you are competing with each other. I'd love to get your take on how that plays out. Listen, I, I think it's a fact of life in this market. It's the same thing. It's who does it better. I think ultimately it's, it's finding the right partner. There are good and bad partners and we're lucky and, and we, we've dealt with both. But our, you know, our current partnership list is is very healthy and and there is a is it, i think we've used this word before it's slightly incestuous everybody's kind of in the same in the same bed but ultimately i think if you if you take it back to our, our kind of purpose as a business and and we set out to kind of reimagine the way that money flows to create a better tomorrow for all and we're not, we're not talking about how we do that and this is around the end consumer or the end business and we're not a direct to market uh, business some of the partners we use have been before and some of them are, are no longer. But I think it's just understanding this and there's, it's, it's a big pie, right? Yeah. That we're all going after there's enough for everybody. We want to provide the best possible service to our customer. And sometimes we, and, and also to keep up with customer demand, you know, again, not just in the B2B, which I think is getting there, but, but slowly, but certainly in the B2C world, we're, we're very needy as human beings. And you know, the technology has made us even even needier. So we, the pace of innovation has to be be such that sometimes going direct to a a big bank or you know a, a scheme in in country takes time. And if we have partners who are already on the ground have that presence and that expertise, then that's a sensible way to get to market. And you know, we've done it whenever we've kind of launched in new jurisdictions. You know, we we look at that. We look at ultimately what's best for the customer. Is it the long term play? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. But I think it's ultimately with that, with that vision, and with the you know, the end customer at the heart of everything we do, it has to be customer centric. And I think, and and the, the best partnerships we have are with um, companies who who share that sense of purpose and and share that desire to come and delight the customer. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we're, unfortunately, I think we're almost running up on time. I'm just being pinged by the team, but I'm going to ignore them for a couple of minutes, and because I just wanted to kind of dig into what 2022 kind of holds for, for Tazapay and give you kind of an opportunity to, to talk about, you know, what's coming up. You've, you've been in business now for what, 18 months, just over 18 months and great time to start a business in the middle of the pandemic. But, you know, with what's going on, I think it's been kind of beneficial. This is what, what's needed to happen in this B2B space. But what is, what does 2022 hold for, for you guys? That's something which we think about a lot. It's taken us about almost 14 months to build the product. It's a complex product with, local collections, local disbursements in partnership directly, getting the licenses where we needed to. We think we found product market fit. And when I say this because my definition of product market fit is when you have repeatability of use cases. So people are using us for the same use cases. Initial days, we were bespoke all over the place. So repeatability of use cases, there's more predictability of our volumes and customers are giving us good feedback along with bad feedback that it's solving a problem. It's all so, good feedback. So. <laughs> so just trying to 
now it's about accelerating getting even more focused on things we want to do so we want to focus on two things one is getting scale with our marketplaces and marketplaces and saas platforms we've got big ones mid sized ones uh, get scale and the second which is equally important is uh, to continue build out our collection network globally because that is where it is the essence of what we are doing making this available to our marketplaces and saas partners the ability to collect funds globally and then have the application on top and this will be done in partnership as well as uh, as the right so build out our network build out our regulatory muscle and most importantly scale with our customers and make sure we are solving a problem for them every step of the way isn't it is going to be uh, it's going to be fascinating to see the journey that you're going on i think that whenever we whenever you speak to founders and founders of some of the really successful companies all have a, a good sense of kind of purpose and and some of them have been kind of disgruntled users of an yeah. industry and want to go and want to go and impact it but it's it's great to see when you know, founders have been kind of disgruntled but within the ecosystem and you kind of lived this for 20 years and and now you're kind of taking the challenge on of of uh, solving the the challenges because it's not just one challenge the challenges of, of cross border kind of b2b and listen we we're, we're, we're really excited to be on this journey with you thank you so much for for coming on where can people find more about tazpay or, or yourself or who tazpay obviously on the web www.tazpay.com and i'm the, not a prolific uh, twitter user but i post a lot on linkedin or you could just connect with me on linkedin but uh, great chatting with you richard and Thank you so much for all your support and currency cloud support in getting us up, getting us to where we are. No problem. Once again, uh, Rahul from Tazpay, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at currencycloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.